We're in show business, even though we're racing. Um, exactly. It's all about putting. It's all about putting people in the stands or viewers, however we want to look at that. To grow something, you have to get everybody involved. And if we're not involving them on a weekly basis, we have to figure out how we're doing that more times than not. Episode 151, Tank Slap and Pod. Got another interview pod. I'm stoked for this one. It's a fellow District 6 rider, somebody I actually spent a lot of time with at the track growing up with, racing with, and man, he only lives about an hour down the road from me, so it's cool to have Sean Bear on the podcast, Eric. Yeah, it's going to be uh, pretty exciting. It's kind of the the melting of our two worlds uh, between um, you know, being at the the top level and then coming back within the hooligan side. So I'm like, I've been telling you, I've been super excited for this one for a long time. I hope uh, people that listen to it are as excited as we are. Yeah. And I always enjoy these interview pods more. I think I've been pretty vocal about that recently. It's just, a, it's just better. It's a better atmosphere for me. I have a lot more fun with it, talking with people, learning more about them. And like I said, I've known Sean a long time, but I haven't honestly spoken with him that much over the past probably, I don't know, man, six, seven, eight years where we just kind of lost touch a little bit on our friendship, but got a lot of respect for him as a, as a rider, definitely. But I really appreciate how he speaks his mind, speaks his opinion on different issues. He definitely doesn't shy away from that on on social media, things regarding the top level series and now in the hooligan series as well. I think it's it's really cool that riders speak their mind and uh, we need more of that, honestly. So, but aside yeah. from that, man, he's, he's a, he's got a really good career. Like so far he's, he's done a lot of cool things. I don't want Sean Bear to be defined as a hooligan rider. He's, he's been a, a, a really good rider in the pro series too, for, for many, many years. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I agree with that. He, but, uh, you know, talking about riders speaking their mind and, and not backing away from it. It's kind of funny. It's like, I would say it's more like he's almost like reinvented himself um, for this like newer generation of like flat track where he, like because he is so vocal and he is so dominant, he's kind of turned into the Jared Mees of hooligan racing. And uh, for someone that races in that series, like I'm super excited to like dive into kind of learn about how yeah it all came to be. So, yeah, let's go. Yeah, I want to make sure we shout out some sponsors and make this show possible before he comes in. Mission Foods, really appreciate everything they do for the sport, keeping us rolling. Big shout out to everybody at Mission Foods. They're really passionate fans of flat track. I mean, I would say motorcycle racing in general, car racing, et cetera. But man, Mr. Gonzalez, the CEO of Mission Foods, he is a huge flat tracker. I mean, he's a big, he's the flat track in Mexico growing up. And it's really cool, man, talking with him about the sport. It's not like some big CEO from a company that has no clue what a, a, you know, a steel shoe is like this guy is a racer. So it's really cool that he's involved and appreciate them for supporting our podcast. Indian motorcycle, big fans of everything that Indian motorcycle is doing for the sport. We appreciate them for, for supporting our podcast. Also want to give a shout out to Dunlop motorcycle tires, 19 and 17 inch flat track tires. They have moto street tires. They got it all. Make sure you check out their website, Dunlop motorcycle tires.com. Want to give a shout out to Uncle Jerry, keeping us rolling. Jerry Stinchfield, Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas. Talk about passion in the sport, man. That guy's got it. He's just, I I love chatting with Jerry. We talk about once, twice a week. And 
just bullshit about racing, man. And uh, he's super passionate about the sport and what, what it involves, you know, the, the, the whole aspect of flat track. So appreciate Jerry Moto America on tap for this weekend, Pittsburgh international race complex. It's my birthday weekend. I'll be at mini cub watching my little guy race and putting on the mini cup series. If you're anywhere near the Pittsburgh area, it's in Womp, Wampam, Wampam or something. I can't even say the freaking city name, but it's near <laughs> Pittsburgh. Uh, go check it out. It's uh, apparently it's a really cool race uh, racetrack. I've never I've never been there yet, so I'm excited for Moto America. If you can't watch the action live, make sure you check out their live plus package. Um, uh, two more sponsors that keep us rolling: Bell Power Sports. Check out their website bellhelmets.com, and also Yamaha Motorsports and Yamaha Racing. Blue Crew, Blue Crew's in the mix for some titles, man. It's coming down to Springfield, and we appreciate everything Yamaha does for the pod and keeping us rolling. They got motorcycles, ATVs. They got they have pianos. I mean, they're Yamahas across the board, baby, and appreciate them for supporting our pod. Without any further ado, we have Sean Bear on the pod. What's good, man? How are you? I'm good. How are you, Corey? I'm good, man. It's uh, me, and then I got your, I would say, fellow hooligan rider, but you pretty much only see Eric probably when he's in the fence at Limer when you're coming around the Yeah, if I'm on the lead lap with you, Sean, it's a good day, buddy. That's good. Uh, how you feeling? Oh, you know, I've been better. I've been better, but, you know, the lake's starting to bend, and uh, I'll be back about uh, probably Thanksgiving time. So plenty of time to get this uh, this new hooligan that I'm building uh, ready and, and going, so pretty excited. Nice. Uh, new hooligan. What the heck's going on there? Yeah, uh, we're uh, slowly getting the ball rolling on a triple, so we're going to be uh, building a trident. Um, I'm been that's kind of been the worst kept secret for a while but um hey just like you you know you know you read the rules and you you know what's legal and uh so we're gonna put a uh triple out there and and uh, see if we can't piss off some uh some og uh harley guys right that's pretty awesome a uh, triple will be <laughs> yeah. pretty exciting yeah yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's a lot of stuff we want to talk about man uh definitely there's a lot going on with your current racing stuff i mean you've I, I dare I say changing the game in the hooligan racing. Um, it's, it's been really cool to kind of see you transition from taking racing as a profession. Uh, I guess loosely, I will say that. I mean, obviously it's hard to make money in this sport, but I'm not going to shy away that you were a successful pro rider for, for a long time, man. I mean, I look back and you were a pro rider for a long time and now you're kind of having fun with it. It's cool to see that smile and that passion back in, in your, you know, your racing program, but I want to kind of dip back honestly to, I mean, you're a fellow district six rider and I want to talk about your amateur career a little bit, how you got started in the sport. And then also just maybe some of your amateur stuff coming up because I mean, Pennsylvania in that time frame, man, it was, it's stacked. And want to talk about that. So let's go into the start, how you got started. I know your dad, obviously Daryl bear, he's a promoter in district six. He's been a promoter for a long time, but from what I remember, he was like a, he raced three wheelers, right? So how did you get started racing flat track? Um, well, um, well, going back to my aunts and uncles, um, at a very young age, there was a, a kid that, that was like a foster kid in the local area. And uh, they kind of took him in, my grandparents did. And uh, um, he 
you know, through growing up everything. And uh, when his parents passed away, he did get a lump sum of money. And he ended up buying three wheelers for all of his brothers that weren't really his brothers, but he grew up around them. So my dad got one, my uncle's got one and they ripped around, did that. And then one day, I think they just got competitive enough that my grandfather's like, we got to take this crap to the racetrack. So that's pretty much where it started. So when you started uh, with the, like the, the flat track discipline, did, uh, did you start on the, you know, the PW50 small stuff or were you already uh, to a bigger, um, you know, bike by the time you got on the track? Well, that's kind of, that's actually another funny story. I actually started on a JR Suzuki and uh, started riding around the yard. I don't know exactly what age, I guess it was probably four or something like that. And I crashed in the front yard, went through like a, my, my grandparents had horses. So I went through a board fence um, and I just kind of like, didn't want to do it. And then um, my one uncle was in the service and uh, one of my cousins was home and uh, he wanted to ride it and was ripping around. They kind of like fixed it or whatever. And he's riding it. And uh, that's when I was like, you know what? I kind of want to do this again. So he kind of left again and they went to a different part of the country for, you know, being in the service and uh, I ended up riding and uh, went to my first race. But after I got to the first race at Trailway Speedway, I was like, yeah, I don't really know if I want to do this. And I didn't, I was kind of like leery on it and I didn't want to get the bike out of the back of the van. And uh, the funny story is, is that uh, local, you know, Jared was local at the time, but Jared Meese, he kind of came over, had his mohawk and stuff was like, oh man, you know, it'll be fun. You know, kind of talking to me and, uh, Corey Horms was another guy, local guy that, uh, you know, kid at the time came over and tried to talk me into it. I didn't run any practice and I didn't run a heat race and they allowed me to start on the last row because by then I was like, all right, I'll, I'll do it. You know, it's nighttime and kind of just felt like we're going to go home soon. So we got it out. And they let me start last in the uh, uh, main event or whatever. And uh, I don't even remember how it went. It went terrible probably, but uh, either way did it. And then I was kind of hooked from that point on and just, you know, came back every week and that's probably pretty much you know i want to say the start of you know something that now i just can't get out of my system i want to say yeah and you mentioned that you mentioned jared meese and you mentioned another name that i haven't heard in a while but Corey horms and there was a lot of really good young talent in our like area uh those who went on to have successful careers and even those like Corey horms he i don't think he i don't know if he ever turned pro i mean but he was he was a guy to be around our local area for a long time. And I mean, for you, Sean, like, you know, I spent a lot of time with you growing up and stuff at the track and you weren't a guy, honestly, and I say this as a compliment, you weren't a guy that had the most talent. I mean, you were just relentless and you did a lot of races. You wanted to learn the sport. I mean, nothing really came easy in terms of the talent side of it. And, you know, you just kept going and, you know, grinding, you weren't like an amateur standout, but what what attributed to that like where did that love come from during the amateur years and talk about some of the guys you raced with and those who kind of shaped you into uh the rider you are now yeah growing up around all the great people in pennsylvania really and just the east coast in general uh have a lot of tribute to what i've become now and uh what i love but Really starting out, like you said, uh, it's true. I pretty much sucked when I was younger. And uh, some days I still feel like I do. But it does come down to the fact of never giving up and uh, being true to yourself. I mean, no. When everybody asks, you know, did you train this week? Did you do any riding? The answer is no. I just rode at the racetrack. That's the only time I ever put my leg over a bike. Other than whenever, you know, uh, Corey, your dad, you know, pretty much I want to say after almost I was pro by then, 
you know, I'd come down to your guys' place and we'd ride a little bit here or there, but I'd only come down on a Saturday that we didn't have a race somewhere or, you know, whatever. We weren't riding during the week. I, I had to, you know, be serious about work and uh, trying to, to raise enough money to be able to have race bikes. Um, and, and my parents made it easy, but they made it hard too. You know, they, they had a lot going on and, and they had a lot of different um, things that they were trying to make happen. But as a kid, I just have to say like racing for me, I tried a lot of other, you know, sports and, and did things, but nothing ever stuck for me just because it wasn't interesting. And it's not that they weren't challenging. Also, I just didn't enjoy ball sports and, and I tried wrestling, you know, I just didn't enjoy it and I didn't dedicate myself to it. And I can feel like, or I, I just feel like after I started with the racing part of it and really committed, it, it's just something I never even thought about quitting, you know, like totally stopping. So as you're growing up in the uh, the district and you're you know starting to starting to have some success, what was the catalyst for you to say, you know what, I think I'm going to try this? Was it kind of seeing your peers um, that you're racing with uh, click over and go professional, or um, just a, a dream that you had started to develop over the years? What 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 was it that got you to say, I think I think I can do this for a living? Yeah, I don't really know if I ever really felt like I could do it for a living. Um, obviously, we do dream. And I remember around five years old, it was five to six years old, somewhere in that range. I know 1991 was basically a, a year that I started racing um, more regularly, I want to say. So, um, you know, as a kid. So it really, yeah, I would say like my heroes and, and local people, but honestly, the sport itself was the sound of the bikes and what they were doing with them on the racetrack. Like I went to motocross races or, you know, seen a hair scramble or, you know, I just stood there and I was confused with that stuff because I was like, I don't really want to do all that. So to dumb it down, I just liked motorcycles going in a circle. And that was cool to me. Uh, yeah, that, it, it wasn't hard to understand. Yeah, that's really cool to hear because um one of the things that attracted me to this sport, it's, you know, I, I, I don't back away from it that I am, you know, an out, uh, a third person outside of you looking into, it. I got into the sport a lot later, but it was the sound of these goddamn motorcycles, just that there's such a unique sound. Um, that was just so interesting. So when I hear you talk about the sound of a motorcycle, I'm like, yes, yes, you're speaking my language. It's just, uh, you know, we hear it so much. Uh, that we may, you know, become numb to it, but they're just, it's such a rad sound. So that's awesome to hear. It is. And, and really just it, for me, it was, it's, it wasn't the singles either. It was the twin noise that basically got me, you know, still hooked to this day. There's not anything other than a 410 sprint car that really gets me excited in that way, as far as racing. But when you're around that type of power and you're just, you know, taking it all in, that's the part that really gets, um, you know, you wanting to go back next week or figure out a way to make something sound even better. And, and to me, that's what pulls people from, you know, tailgating in the, you know, in the parking lot to the fence that, you know, they're like, man, I, I want to be part of this or, you know, you just kind of feel it. And, and I just, I think that's something that's humongous and you need to have it because if, if we go electric, I think everybody's going to stay at their, uh, their cars and just drink. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly didn't, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I took the sound for granted, honestly. Um, now that, now that you got the way you guys kind of played it out there, but yeah, that's, uh, that's super interesting. And I know, like, I'm trying to think when you went pro Sean, was it, 
oh two oh three when when was your first pro year um my first i mean pro am stuff was a little different back then but the red numbers white backgrounds uh 2000 into 2001 i got a provisional deal um you know basically i think i think 2000 2000 end of 2001 or mid 2001 i believe i rode uh randy shanks uh harley at somewhere in columbus ohio area on a half mile it was like a cushion but a small groove by the end of the day um Dioda downs i think it was got the, yeah so Dioda. i mean road tax days and all the single stuff kind of started you know i want to say pro-am days was somewhere around 2000 um when i got to do that but really what stands out to me is that 2001 into 2002 where i got that you know basically that provisional to be able to run that uh you know, that 750, even though I had a, you know, I had a Harley sports performance kind of, you know, deal too, that doesn't, I don't really, I, I remember stuff about it, but detail as far as dates and all that stuff and when things went on, it wasn't that exciting to me at the time. Cause my ultimate goal was to get on that 750. That's really the only thing that really drove me um, through those years. I want to say. Yeah. Um, man, I was, uh, part of my kind of coaching and schooling with Evan Renshaw is we sit down and watch YouTube videos from the nineties and the early two thousands. And last night we were watching, I think it was the 2003 Springfield mile. And it was like Springer's quote unquote last full season where obviously he kept racing for a few more years, but it was the Oh three Springfield mile. And I turned to pro sport in Oh six and, like you said, I'm trying to explain the kind of the structure back then is so confusing. Like I was pro sport in 06, basic expert in 07, and then GNC in 08. Uh, nobody that just started watching today knows what the fuck I'm talking about. But I missed kind of the early 2000s. Like I never raced really. I don't think I raced Johnny Murphy. I didn't race Springer. I didn't race. I didn't really race George Roder. I think I raced with him like once and he that demolished me. But a lot of my heroes that I grew up watching race against my dad, when I turned pro, most of them had just gotten, just gotten out of the sport. I never raced Parker. Uh, you're, you kind of dipped into that a little bit when you turned pro, you know, Oh one Oh two, what was it like lining up against some of those names? Uh, for me personally, I, it was intimidating for me. I think it's actually, it hurts. It hurt me more being around the sport so much growing up because when I turned pro racing against those guys, it was like racing against superheroes. Like I watched them race and I admired them for so long. I never felt like I deserved to be out there uh, for a long time, man. It took me a little while to get over that. And what are your, what were your thoughts? Cause you were obviously a big fan of the sport. I know you're a huge Ricky Graham fan. And what was it like racing those guys? Did you race Parker? Any, any of those guys? I don't, no, if I can remember lining up next to Parker, obviously I probably wouldn't have been on the same row anyway, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd have to say you kind of touched upon everything I felt. And I think anybody, you know, it's the, it's the same for today, I guess, kind of looking at, you know, some of the guys, even though you look at some of the, you know, it just, it, it is different. Um, I want to say the competition is narrowed. It's not that it's went down. It's just narrowed. Um, in my opinion, and that's talking loosely also, not for myself, just looking at the field. Like when you looked in front of you in the late 90s, early 2000s, it, to get on any of those rows was like, 
I want to say almost impossible without, you know, everything going correctly as a, as a rookie, I want to say during that time, because there was so much talent uh, in quantity, I want to say um, they had so many guys. So yeah, the, the feel going back to the feeling of it. Yeah. I, I, I still, that was something I struggled with my whole even pro career that I didn't feel I was good enough and I didn't belong there. Um, and it's not because I didn't personally put my own effort in, but when I got to the racetrack, I just, I stayed to myself and I worked on my own equipment or with the team I was with at the time. And I didn't really make a lot of extra friends. I want to say I didn't make any, I didn't, I didn't work on making enemies. Actually, I was probably too nice majority of the time. Um, but actually being that character or who I really am, it, it actually did get me things or help um, to help me, you know, carry me through certain times that maybe I would have been just, having to quit or, or get out of it because I couldn't afford to do it um, or travel or make it to the races. I mean, obviously a person I owe a lot of, you know, credit to is uh, Kenny Yoder. Um, that guy, that guy was, he, he, that's where I learned a lot of the relent, you know, just not giving up. Um, granted at some point he just decided he had some other things he wanted to do in life, but that man just kept going back week after week, no matter what the results were. And, that for me, that's why he's probably my biggest hero. Um, maybe not from the finishes or from the glory side of it, but the fact that the man um, did it the way he could and it wasn't always picture perfect, but he had a smile on his face and he was doing what he loved. And that's, that's something that'll stick with me for the rest of my life for sure. So, uh, you know, you've been, you've been at this, this top level for basically, and, you know, since uh, the last 20 years and, you've been you've been able to see it from kind of the Chris Carr days to like the the, the Jake Johnson uh days to now um so I'm I'm interested to see what is um like kind of a you know higher elevation what do you think of the ebb and flow of um professional American flat track racing when you go back you can look at all the damn different acronyms they've chopped and changed everything over the years um what was your favorite period of your professional career and obviously like you know you've kind of reinvented yourself now but like when we're looking at like kind of the the pro level of Sean Bayer what was your favorite uh era out on the track man I have to say just the beginning because I guess that just sticks with you it it just impacted me so much. And I guess that's what's been so hard about some of the changes that's taken place. It's, it, you know, I, I love, it's still, the, you know, it's still racing and I, I still value it. I just look at it differently because of some of the things they've taken away. Um, for me, the national number thing was so humongous growing up that it, it meant something. And now I don't feel it means as much. Uh, right down to the fact of, you know, the stepping stone that takes to get to be a professional, um, you know, having, you know, a Dolly Barnes and, you know, a Jim Barnes part of this, which had Kevin route racing, but were really big parts of, I want to say the traveling crew of the national circuit where, you know, whenever they signed off on certain things, it happened. Um, and they're, I want to say credible to what they decided as far as when the person was ready uh, to be able to get the license or had enough of whatever it took to get there, which would be points or, you know, enough time on a twin. And, and I guess that all comes down to the fact that in today's world, you know, you got your singles guys and then you got your, your twins guys. It's still top level both ways is kind of the way I take it. 
you know, you, you kind of know if you want to ride a twin in the future, or there's guys that just don't have a, you know, an interest in that, or it's just kind of too far fetched to even think about doing. So I feel like the stepping stones have just changed. And that's why I liked when I came onto the scene so much is I actually feel like I was born like, you know, two or three generations too, you know, I want to say too late, but at the same time, I got to, I got to tail end it. I still got to, to feel that. And I don't know how to get that back on track, but I feel like that's something that that value and, um, you know, just the idea of it as a young kid, the, the, uh, what's the, you have to kind of climb the ladder to get there. That's what I think we're missing is that intermediate kind of, you know, what am I really working for? Where am I going to get with this? And, and as long as you're working and, and climbing the ladder, that's what you're doing. And you're, the ultimate goal is to get there. But now it's kind of like you got this. And then you're there, you know, you just, I don't know. I just feel like that's something that's changed. And I don't know if Corey feels that way or not. It's just, uh, it's a lot different today than it used to be. Yeah. I don't even think the riders know exactly what their end goal is. I mean, I think everybody's goal was pretty definitive coming up through. It was, you know, you get through the singles class back then it was pro sport or what have you, you get through there as quick as you can and you want to ride an XR 750, kind of like you you talked about, you know, in, in your career, I think that was pretty much everybody's game plan. Like the game plan was pretty much black and white, you know, get through. And even back way back when we're talking, you know, the Facebook keyboard guys were novice junior expert. I mean, you pretty much, you wanted to get to expert. You didn't fuck around in the other classes, but now I think it's, it's so challenging because at the end of the day, I mean, everybody, every kid's dream and goal is to make money as, as you know being a racer a lot of these kids they want to they want to make a career racing motorcycles they don't want to go to college they don't want to you know <laughs> they don't want to do any of that they want to race motorcycles and now it's so challenging we talk about it on the podcast a lot but the singles class is so profitable and a lot of it is just because there's just more teams in that class that offer paid rides and better bonuses and you don't see, you don't really see their urgency to move up and ride a twin. They don't really care. Um, there's no, yeah, a lot of that history and, you know, and you see it a lot too with the fans talking about, you know, how the singles that they feel is the premier class. It's like, dude, no, like what makes flat track so special is the sound of a twin motorcycle going down the Springfield mile straightaway, pitching it into the corner, the custom motorcycles. I mean, the singles class is cool, but it's not, it doesn't, it's, that's not what makes flat track special. It's the twins. And yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's, we're in a really challenging period right now where we need to sit down and come up with a game plan to try and advance these singles riders, given some incentive to move up. Cause I don't blame them at all. I mean, if they're making X amount of dollars, why would they, you know, take, take no money to ride a twin and get seventh, um, when they can get, you know, riders in the singles are making more getting seventh in that class than they are in the freaking twins class. So it's a, it's a frustrating thing for sure, especially growing up in the sport, Sean, like you have, but, um, you know, for you kind of, I, I don't know if I want to fast forward to kind of what kind of got you out of it. I, I, I do want to touch upon you, you grew up, you got a you got an XR 750, which is actually a really crazy story. If you want to touch touch upon that, but then you kind of got away from the Harley stuff, and you started building these very unique motorcycles. Um, basically, basically what everybody else had, you fucking did the opposite. It's like I'm building a KTM. <laughs> now I went to I'm building a BMW. It's like I didn't even know fucking BMWs 
had motorcycles anymore. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> you show up with a BMW. I'm like, what the hell is that thing? It sounds like a TZ750. Um, so you've always, you, you got the XR, you did the XR thing for a while and it's no secret. The XR750 stuff was so expensive. I mean, those bikes blew up. It was like seven grand to fix, you know, it's like, but then you started building these crazy unique motorcycles. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit before we transition into kind of what you're doing now and the end of your pro career, uh, touch upon that a little bit, that, that, you know, getting that XR 750 and then transitioning into kind of the different brands and stuff that you did. Yeah. Um, I was sponsored by uh battlefield Harley Davidson in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, during the, the 883 sports performance series. Um, and they didn't really want to step up and do anything with a 750 because, like you're saying, the cost. They kind of like, you know, wanted to look at the bank of the buck kind of thing. So they were willing to do whatever and carry out the 883 Sportster, you know, deal. But that was kind of, I want to say, dying. Um, it was it was kind of slouching off and, and just wasn't caring like it was. So I would always try to support, you know, obviously you try to support who's supporting you. And uh, I just bought a raffle ticket at the dealership. Um, it was basically for abused children at Gettysburg and it was a $20 ticket and it was, you could take the cash prize or you could take the motorcycle, which was worth $21,000 is the cash prize that they came up with. Um, I got a phone call. I don't know. It was like three months later after I bought that ticket, totally forgot all about it. Didn't even know, didn't even have the ticket anymore. And, uh, when they called me, they explained who they were, didn't register to me at the time. I was almost ready to hang up. And uh, they're like, you won. And I'm like, this has got to be a joke. You know, this is back when I had a flip phone. You know, I was like, this is, you know, someone. I think you were at my house. Stupid. I think you were at my house when they called it was, you. Yeah, it, I might have been down to your place at the time. And either way, it was kind of just like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is crazy. So um, between everything, anyway, uh, showed up the dealership. They did this whole you know, presentation thing, received the check, went right to the bank, biggest checks to this day I've ever taken to the bank and uh, more or less knew what I was going to do with it right away. Um, I knew that there was some 750s for sale and I was like, this is just what I'm going to commit to do. And pretty much money went in the account within a week. It was out of the account, all blown on a motorcycle that was not probably in the best condition that, you know, I, it was race ready, but it wasn't race ready. I mean, there was it, it was a used uh, XR750. It wasn't like it was brand spanking new. And, uh, you know, I, I did take it to Farley, Iowa, and I got injured right away. Uh, Joe Kopp and a scratch heat lost it in turn three and four. And that's actually why I'm missing my pinky on my right hand. Ended up in the hospital. Anyway, ended up going home, you know, just to try to keep the story going forward. Uh, turned around, fixed the thing, but, you know, really, uh, you know, your dad, uh, Randy Texter had a big impact on me as far as saying like, Hey, I, I can help you out with this and we can get this motor off the ground at the time. Um, I was actually hooked up with Carl Patrick a little bit talking to him and, uh, actually did a little riding for him during all this too, uh, with the Mike hacker getting injured, um, in Daytona. Um, and that's kind of like advancing forward, but the start kind of breaking it all up and just trying to give you pieces of it. Um, but Randy, you know, he he more or less said, you know, if you're really serious about this, you know, I'll try to, you know, help you out. Well, more or less, um, he pretty much made it almost like painless to me. Uh, the parts went out to Carl Patrick, the motor got built, and um, 
pretty much went forward from there. Um, I was working with Bob Barry and uh, like more or less co-riding with uh, Ricky Winsett out of Patriot Davidson um, a little bit. And they were all helping too. And I was kind of just new at it all. So the engine, I didn't know much about, you know, obviously I was young and uh, just having great people around me is what made it successful or even possible. Um, so it, that's something that, you know, will always stick with me too, is Randy didn't have to help me. You know, he didn't have to say, you know, Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. And then turn around and say, Hey, your bill is zero. And uh, to me, that was kind of crazy because, you know, yes, you know, growing up with you, Corey, too, and, and getting to go to the races and, and Randy getting to see both of us ride, you know, he had a lot of money to, uh, you know, to invest in, in the future for you guys, you and Shana, to be able to go forward. But the thing that stuck with me is he didn't just help you guys. He helped so many people. And that's something that means a lot to me in the sport is, you know, the guys that are, you know, some of the guys that are successful or the big names that you know of don't just help their own team or their own people they are they're actually lovers of the whole entire sport and and try to put you know effort into other areas i mean even with the fact of promoting races or doing things i know your dad even invested time in the district so he just i think he you know just lived this life i mean this was the only thing that i'm not going to say it's the only thing that mattered but it was one of the things that he it always funneled back to this somehow way shape or form like he just was connected to flat track racing and I feel like that's just the, uh, you know, the driving force that was in your family from, you know, many years ago. So one of the things, you know, like everybody knows. Well, okay, let me. Real fast. That. I appreciate nowadays. That, I appreciate uh, the, the nice words about my dad, man. It's, uh, it's really cool to hear other people's yeah, input yeah, sure. input um, about my pops. It's it's gone. It's coming up on the, what is it? 23. It's coming up on 13 years now in uh, in a couple of weeks that Whoa. we, we lost him. And That's it's just crazy. really, it's really cool to kind of hear stories and keeping his memory going. So I, I appreciate that, but yeah, go ahead, Eric. Well, and it's, it, it's not just your dad too. I mean, your grandfather, your grandmother, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy that your, your entire family um, just, you know, the dealership was there and you guys, you know, that was being ran and, and everything was being taken care of, you know, but racing almost came first. And, 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 and I know it didn't um, always, but at times it did, you know, when the race season was starting, it was pretty much like, you know, you knew where your dad was going to be and, and you knew it was being worked on and you knew that there was a lot of money being spent. So everything that went on all winter long, it's just, you know, everybody around you that was connected to the dealership or just friends with you guys, you know, the dino room was a disaster before Daytona, but, he was just thrashing and everybody that could pitch in did. Um, and there was things I remember helping with, but at the same time, I didn't help because I thought I'd get anything back out of it. I was just helping because actually I was learning too. Um, plus I also just felt like it was so awesome what was going on. Um, you know, how much work was going into it, all the new parts, like there was things that were cool about it, but at the same time, it just was, it was the relationship wasn't based off of, you know, saying, Hey, I'm going to get anything back out of Lancaster Harley Davidson or, you know, either way, but the tag along thing, your dad was always willing to say like, why don't you just go with us? You know, why don't you just go with us here? Why don't you do this? So it just always kind of just was easy flowing. And it was, um, you guys were going to the racetrack. So already, and at the same time, you just felt more secure going with people that knew what needed to be done. So I learned a lot during that time. And, uh, I value that even today. So as you progress through your career, what, 
and you 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 hopped over to the BMW. What was the first year that that um, that that bike hit the track? Um, was that the was that in seventeen or I might be way off of my year, but I know what year did that BMW hit the track? Well, um, what year did we did we race at Williams Grove? Two years or one, uh, Corey? Oh man, um, I think I think we so, only ran Williams Grove once. No, we did it. We did no, it. No, we ran it twice. I think we ran it three years because I think. No, I, I think Cruz was born in 2017. I remember leaving the hospital and going right to the track. Um, and then that was 17. And then 18, I remember I was on a, I was on a, oh no, 18, I rode, um, I rode a Harley there that year. And that's the year Ryan Barnes, he uh, T-boned Jake Johnson on the restart. He came from like eighth on the restart. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. This is a really funny story. He came from like eighth on the restart. He was absolutely hauling ass, but he was, he was like eighth or ninth on the restart. And I think Kevin told him like, you can podium this. And he was like, it was like five laps to go. He runs it in the turn one and just cartwheels into the back of Jake Johnson, who was like running third. And then I remember they were getting drug tested after the race. And, um, Varnes was sitting there just death staring Jake and Jake's like, what's up, dude? Like what, 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 what did I do? And, Barnes is like, you parked it in the corner and I freaking T-boned you. I would have podiumed. <laughs> he was blaming Jake for <laughs> him T-boned him. That's just funny, <laughs> funny story. Uh, anyway, I think we raced there because then we did it also in 19 as well. Um, but that was like the first year for a production twin. So anyway, who, who knows? We, we were there a few years, but I, th- I think I remember the BMW in – I want to say it was 19, 18 or 19. Cause before that you did the KTM for a long time. Yeah. So, um, somewhere around the 2017, 2018 timeframe, I was standing in Springfield and, uh, more or less they were telling me that the KTM, you know, that's pretty much going to be obsolete a year later. And I wasn't just going to quit. So I'm like, well, what do I got? What, what's my, what's my options? Well, Ron Wood out of California was running that BMW F800 and in the basic class um, throughout when it would come in and go out or whatever, it, you know, a couple of different times they tried that, that class. So um, yeah, in, in 2000, I believe it was 18 or 19. I don't want to say 100%, but I know I made it to Williams Grove and I blew that dang thing up and uh, pretty much knew that was the end of my my efforts of racing professionally per se i was like you know i need time to to research and develop this thing and and make it something better than just the stock parts were not capable of doing what i wanted to do with it and uh so that's kind of the start of the 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 bmw was after the ktm was more or less obsolete uh cc wise from you know i want to say the top class and i didn't want to go back and just ride a single that the singles don't interest me as a person um, again, because I like to make noise and I like it to sound good. So, um, the BMW, I mean, going forward in the, in the, in, you know, the idea, I didn't really plan on, you know, not really coming back, but it, in my mind, I was like, without something better, uh, a better build, there's just no reason to, uh, attempt it. And after you kind of, I don't want to say exit something or you, you do something for so long and then you, you you know, stop there. There's a sense of depression. I want to say that set in for a while. And I felt like 
you know, there was really no way back out of the hole. And that's pretty much because I was starting with this, you know, engine. I only had one of and had a hole out the front of it already. And all this time that was invested, I want to say, in trying to, to make things, you know, right, more or less chassis wise was trying to make everything better there. Um, but it's just every step of the way, every time you turn around and you make one part better, you find another weak part. So it took years, obviously, you know, Corey, until lining up at, you know, Frederick this year, knowing I didn't have anything for you, um, but knowing I had a good motor under me, even though uh, I was, you know, pushing water by, you know, lap, what, six or seven of the main event um, there, I figured out another issue even this year, but um, I feel like I have another, I have a better idea of what it takes and it takes a lot of time. So for a small team like myself being a single person and just minute people helping, it takes years to actually get something off the ground that's worthy of running at that level. And I don't think people realize how much, you know, you know, you don't take a Kenny Tolbert for, for granted, but you, you know, the man knows what he can get away with and what he can't get away with, even though he's still re reaching and, and, and trying to find more avenues of success, you know, like continuing to stay on top. It doesn't just happen. Um, you know, just even not to have failure. I mean, when's the last time you really seen Jared pull off the racetrack because something's not running? I mean, it's very few times that you, you catch that man in them positions. And I, and I don't want to jinx it, but, uh, you know, coming up this sprinkle mile, you got to think that man is, you know, worried about those things. Well, the difference between a team like that and a, and a, and a team like I call mine is, you know, it's me doing all those things and I'm on lap five, 10, 15, 20, whatever, or lap two, I'm thinking about what I put together and I'm the one trying to get it around the racetrack. And I think that's the difference between some of what today brings compared to what used to be. Um, you know, yeah, guys got stuff built back then too, but there was more guys showing up with their own equipment and, and with some help, but they were doing it themselves more than what today, you know, I want to say there's, you know, a lot of guys are, you know, getting, you know, their engines built over here, or their engines built over there, instead of just saying, you know, I'm going to do all this stuff here, you know, in my garage, and I'm going to do it my way. You know, I like that part of it. But at the same time, I think that's where the stress level goes up. Like, um, even though I'm not racing at the top level, I hate failure. And I and I don't like looking like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so that's why it's kind of hard to come out and, uh, you know, come out and play because, at times it's like, man, I think I need more time. And that's what those, the time from 2019, which was my last AFT race up until basically, I want to say a year ago, I felt like I still was trying to figure stuff out. So I only raced three times one year, four times another year, maybe 10 times, you know, so it's just, I never really committed to coming out and just going after it because I had a limited amount of, you know, a supply of motorcycles. I want to say that I was able to, uh, to be able to say, well, I just blew up another one. I just blew up another one. So it's hard um, for everybody, but it's really hard when you're doing it all by yourself. Yeah. And I, honestly, I think what a lot of people don't know about you, and I don't think we touched upon it, is you build your own frames, you build your own wheels. You are a very, very skilled machinist. And so you're not just putting to, you're not buying these parts and just assembling them. You're basically basically developing your frame, developing the uh, the wheel packages. If you look at your wheels, they're very unique. I mean, nobody else runs 
runs the kind of wheels that you're running and you, you guys, you know, and your dad, you guys are really, really, really good machinists. I mean, from the triple clamps that you guys have made and frames. And I mean, it's pretty cool to say I'm running a bare frame. I mean, people literally, when they're, when they have a motorcycle, it's, it's like, I'm running a bare frame. Like, that's cool, man. It's fucking cool. Like it's your frame that people use or, or your wheels. So I think that's one thing that, you know, maybe you're just being humble, but um, you do, you build the whole freaking motorcycle. It's not like, you know, it's not like you're assembling it. So I, th- I think that's, that's part of what, what you do as well. That's really underrated and really, really cool. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk with that being said, was there any other reason? Um, I mean, you're not that young, um, but you're in really good shape. So you don't ride at all, but I don't know, man, genetics or something, those Daryl bear jeans, <laughs> you, you, you're in really good, uh, the mullet baby, the mullet, it gives the good genes, but yeah, you're in really good shape, like as good a shape as you've ever been in. So what was kind of the reason in your eyes, opinion, like kind of stepping down from doing the pro stuff, because it wasn't for lack of effort. Like you grinded it out through some really tough times. And, and then, yeah, you, you may just mentioned you were kind of working on, on the bikes a little bit, but was there any other reasons that you kind of didn't want to do the AFT thing? Without complaining, uh, you know, honestly, finances comes down to the biggest one for me, uh, because I was, I was kind of between saying like you're, like you were saying about those singles riders and wanting to make a living. Um, you know, I didn't want to just, you know, for, for many years I, I raced, you know, my, my dad, uh, actually rents a garage. He doesn't have his own, um, as far as for motorcycles. So, it is his garage, but more or less, I wanted my own space where I could make my own mess and I could be frustrated, walk away from it, and then come back to it at a later date when I was actually, you know, after I thought it through or whatnot. So being in his way to being in my cousin's garage, messing in his garage, or, you know, being in my grandparents' garage, I needed to have my own place. So motorcycle racing wasn't going to get me that. So I decided to step away from the racing really on my own terms, even though I was a little angry at the sport, because I feel like that ever changing rules package or idea or the vision just never sticks. And I felt like I needed to be real and I needed to uh, earn it myself. So I stepped away to be able to um, basically purchase a house and have my own dang garage and and be able to um, work at it as I could instead of, Hey, you're in my way. You're going to need to clean this mess up or put it back in your, you know, your back of your van. That's the only thing you own. And I got tired of that feeling. And I felt like I just was, I was like, more or less, I want to say squatting in other, everybody else's area. And, and I just didn't enjoy it anymore. I got tired of the 2am, you know, having to be back up in the morning to go to work because I still was trying to do it. And I, I think I got burned out is personally, what happened and to not jump ahead and not know exactly where you want to go with that. But for me, um, that's why I think everybody thinks I'm in better shape now and and actually a better racer than I used to be is because I actually go to the racetrack and I'm not as tired as I used to be. Um, I enjoy myself more because I pick and choose more what I want to do. And I have more time for preparation when I plan out that far, when you're trying to go to even 10 races a year during the time of, the every weekend kind of deal or maybe even just one weekend off and you're trying to juggle the job 
and you only have two weeks of vacation, you use it for those, you know, races you're going to go to at the same time, work on your equipment. Um, and obviously, yeah, the full-time part is you just have no time to do anything else and, and enjoying it. The only time you enjoy it is for the small amount of time you get to be on the racetrack. So I had to figure out how to enjoy it away from the racetrack too. And, um, at my level, you know, more or less, I want to say. So instead of just continuing to try to send out more resumes and, uh, get more money in, which I didn't really have the results to do that. So, um, for me, that that was something I just felt like I needed to do. And now I'm to the point where if I go racing, it's a total benefit to me. But if I don't, I enjoy my time of, you know, turning on the TV in the garage, turning on flow, watching some kind of dirt sport of sprint cars, late models, or even if I can watch a flat track race. Um, to me, that's that's my time of, you know, to be able to reminisce about my past and, and be able to figure out what maybe I want to do in the future. And I think that's where these, some of these crazy ideas come from is, you know, Tim from pro plates is a really, a really good friend of mine. And I think I wanted, the reason I brought him up is because he's a unique person. Uh, he does, he's, he's an art, he's an artist. So he does a lot of his best work late at night. And that's something a lot of people don't know about me is honestly, that's what I went to school for is to be more in the graphics and to do art, and I end up being a machinist. So uh, I, I don't want to say I wasted my, uh, you know, my schooling, but I decided that wasn't going to do it for me because only a limited amount of people make it as the artist. So for me, that's where I put that energy into motorcycles. And um, not always do they turn out the way I envisioned or or want them to be. But uh, in the end, it's something I was more or less able to create. But even on top of that, that's why hooligan became so interesting to me is because it took a lot of that thought process out of it. So actually it somewhat even made it easier for me to say, all right, we're just going to build a bike with these basic rules and you can't touch this. You can't touch that, but you can mount this on here or you can, you know, bolt this on here and it's allowed. So it, the, the less, I feel like the less pages in the dang rule book, the more interesting it is to me because I'm the guy that overthinks everything and I try to think about everything that can fail or do wrong. And I, I just pound myself into the ground and I, I lose the fun part. So like going back to the fact that like, Corey, I know you can go into a parking lot and you can probably ride for hours and just have fun. I could do that, but I get bored. And, and that's why I think that doing something new for me is something I'm not, a, I'm not a Jake Johnson where I get bored in two seconds, but I'm not a Corey texture that can just <laughs> figure out how to ride a parking lot differently you know, or maybe go bother somebody in the corner of the parking lot for a while. I just more or less, I'm just a different, I'm in between the two. I'm not like Jake and I'm not like Corey, I guess I want to say. I love yeah, that. That's, uh, I love that. So when, um, when you started to get back into the hooligan. It's, hold on a second. It's, 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 I'm laughing even harder because literally last night I, uh, I had a couple of drinks and I was on my e-bike in the basement. I have a super 73 and uh, I, my intention was to go down there and ride with Cruz. And he got bored. <laughs> he got bored. And I was literally <laughs> just fucking riding around on this e-bike for probably an hour, um, you know, mid thirties. And I'm in a basement on an e-bike and or it Amber. Just, it was perfect, dude. It's perfect. <laughs> I love that. Go, go, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So when you decided to get back into the hooligan side, it, it kind of seemed like you just bypass the instagram famous rolling sands 
uh, racing and just went straight to GNHC. Was that because you had like a um, a history with, um, you know, riding at that similar level with Jeremy and, you know, being out on the East Coast? Uh, what, um, I guess what I'm really asking is, is um, when did hooligan riding first come onto your radar um, and for you to say, oh shit, this could be fun? Well, to to answer that question, I, I can't go without saying I know a lot of people say hooligan isn't what hooligan was, and that is very true. And I don't I don't want to say I, I I pick one side of the fence or the other. I can understand why people are frustrated or upset with this idea. Um, for me, the Roland Sands idea, I don't really know if I, I it was for me it was time frame really because it's not that I didn't think it was a good idea or that it's not interesting to watch. You know, I want to say guys ride their street bikes to the races at like Costa Mesa, California and freaking run their, their street bikes on the dirt. I, I will stand there and watch that all night long, but I didn't have an interest in thinking I wanted to do that. So to take it a step farther to somewhat make it racy, um, what hooligan racing has become with GNHC, I just feel like they have a good package on its, it's yes, simple. Yeah. And it's not, it, you know, I've gotten a little grief, obviously, everybody does, but I, I've gotten a little grief this year based off of success for, say, building something that nobody else so-called has yet. Um, but I haven't built anything that nobody else can't have. So we just have to get through this period of time with the, the Harley deal, which is what has carried this. And actually, um. I really looked up to guys like Rich Heverly and stuff that, you know, went to X games and did stuff. And, and I thought the class was cool because it was kind of changing that street bike idea without a light and turning it into a race bike, allowing it to have dirt track tires on it, making it, uh, I feel what it needed to be to lift it off the ground, to carry it to at least where it's at right now, to hope that it's going to lift off even farther. Um, but really the day that it set in for me was, uh, Johnny Lewis's flat track futures race sitting inside the farm show building, watching Ron ride that bike, uh, the sports he was riding for Mark temper at that point in time, the noise again, I'm sitting there going, I want to make noise inside of a little building like this. And I think this is awesome. Now, granted, seeing some of the, you know, those big bikes on a small track, you're going to have some carnage. And, and looking at it that way too is <laughs> what do I really want to do here? And I started looking at it as, well, it, physical shape is still a big deal. And actually in some aspects, I think it's, I want to say it's more important, but it actually almost is just as equally as important as an AFT rider, because these bikes don't handle worth crap with some of the rules that are implemented, a uh, weight yeah. wheelbase, stuff like that. So you have to keep that in mind. So really from that day forward, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I just, it's a matter of when, and I didn't know if I was going to stick with the BMW, which I was already kind of playing with, um, you know, but in a race frame, not in a, in a stock frame. So not knowing even much about it that day, I'm like, I got to look into this. So there was so many nights I, I sat, you know, looking on the internet, like, you know, this is, this is a good idea. Should I do this? Um, and then eBay is just like my, I think eBay's. it's not my sponsor. It's more or less, it's probably my worst habit. So I sit on eBay and I just search for crap all the time, like frames and, you know, what can I do with this? Or does this match this? Or can I, you know, use this in this area? So I don't know why I do that, but it's just more or less the, I guess it's my, uh, my parts book more or less is how I go about it. Like, well, that's a good price. I should have that. So 
um, that's how I pieced the BMW together is I bought what I needed to make it fit within the rules. And then I basically fabbed up everything I was allowed after that um, cost effective wise, what made sense to me. And that's why I feel like, you know, I've been asked the question, you know, like, would you sell your bike to me? Or can I ride your bike has been asked to me quite a bit recently. And it's like, you know, at one point I felt like, yes, at this point where I feel like I want to see this so-called uh, production class go, no, I don't want to do that. I want you to build one and, uh, and I want you to come out and you, I want you to compete because it's a matter of when I'm going to get beat. Um, yeah, obviously people can say, well, every AFT race you went to so far, you won. Well, that's true. I, I did this year, uh, three. Wow. What do you do? You know, to me, that's not really that big <laughs> of an accomplishment because um, I'm trying to help everybody see that it's not that a Harley still can't. It's the fact that there's, I have a list in front of me of like seven motorcycles that are something I'd build right now. Somebody would say, Hey, let's do this. But it, it's just a matter of being a little bit more, I want to say open to the idea that it, it doesn't have to be just brand oriented. It, it's the fact of figuring out what's going to work. I mean, I had a text message yesterday about someone that wants to build, um, you know, one of the street bike Indians, you know, from the rolling sand days. And I'm like, bad idea scratch that off it's just the engine does not fit the package for flat track it's not going to work well the power's right i don't care what power you get out of this bike if it's if it's perfect i don't care the engine package is too big for the for what we were going to have to do with it I, i say scratch it so i'm not scared to tell people what i really think because in the end it's only just my opinion you don't have to listen to me and obviously um you know if i was so good I'd be racing in the top class and I'd be, you know, hoping I'm running against Dallas Daniels or Jared Meese. But um, instead, I'm trying to figure out other ways to help people that are in the middle of the pack like I am, more or less just try to grow their abilities to make this side of the sport better, which is, I feel, a funneling class. If somebody wants the ability to come from a single at a local area to a regional race, to try to get some seat time on a on a twin where you respect a motorcycle before you go run an AFT twin at an AFT race. It's it's an area where I feel like people could play and kids could learn. Um, and I shouldn't call them kids, but young adults where they actually will learn to respect a twin. Because I think that's a that's something that scares me about some of the aggressive 450 riders is they need to understand that a twin's not going to maybe do exactly what you want at that exact time when you can get away with that on a single um you will have to relax and and allow certain things to take place before you get that result that you're looking for out of a twin yeah and i going back a little bit i think it's kind of funny too that you know i've i've been a hooligan fan honestly since the Costa mesa days i remember watching that shit on youtube when it was happening pretty early on in in the early days and I've always been a hooligan fan. I try to pay the hooligans decent money at my events and I pump them up and I, you know, they're the hooligans run right before my open expert class at most of my events. Like, dude, I'm all for the hooligan, the hooligan stuff. Like I I'm a fan of it. But with that being said, you have these hooligan riders who, um, they want to be the show, but they also want to quote unquote, let's, let's make it fun again. It's like, okay, so you want to be the show you want to make, you know, you want to make this money, you want to get, you know, you want to have these high purses, but then you also 
it's too serious. It's not fun enough. It's like, well, dude, you can't have fucking both. Like if you want to, yeah, if yeah. you, if you put up these $5,000 purses, I mean, the one year for Roland Sands, you want a fucking Indian FTR 750. It's not fun anymore. I mean, it's, uh, there's no cherry picking when it comes to the purse money that you're giving out. Um, you put up that purse money, Sean Bear is going to come and, <laughs> and win the race. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, but don't cry about it then. Like, if you want to keep pros, well, then they want pros in it, but then they don't want pros in it, but then they still want to get paid. It's like, okay, so you want a $5,000 purse, but you don't want X pros running it. Well, first they didn't want current pros. Now they bitch about X pros. It's like, but then they still want the fame, the Instagram followers, the payout. It's like, it's like, make up your fucking mind. It's like, well, a good, wanna... ex- well, a good, um, you know, am I off here? I mean, I'm not a hooligan rider. No, so you're I don't. No, you're yeah. right. Because with, with my bike, it was like, oh, Eric, he's kind of mid-pack. He's not, you know, going to be a big deal. But when Tanner Dean hopped on my bike after my injury, holy shit, you guys, like it fucking burned down the scene. It was like, oh, that's cheating. That's cheating. And like now all of a sudden they're paying attention to my goddamn bike about how, oh, that's not a, a hooligan, blah, 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 blah. So I, I've always been a fan of Sean because he's just like, shut the fuck up. Like, you know, uh, it follow the rules, maybe crack it open, read it and let's keep going. So uh, yeah, no, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. And before I go to you, Sean, I just wanted to kind of bring the, bring that up. Like you've never done anything that was against the rules. Like, um, and you've had guys now in the hooligan stuff, you know, you see it, but also going back to even like Bill Warner, like he would just, come on glued because you were running a KTM and he would get mad at you. And it's like, dude, I I'm just riding what the rule book says I can ride. I don't know why you're, why you're being degrading toward me. Um, so yeah, I don't know all of that. That's a loaded kind of, but go ahead, man. <laughs> I want to hear some input on that as well. And honestly, what we're all saying is without more people doing it, there's no way to divide, uh, classes and we don't in a local area and even at the national level we don't need to be adding more classes but do i feel like there is a future if we could get you know people more involved with flat track that don't want to ride singles but they do want to ride twins is there any way where we could have the idea of an a and a b at this point the series and the sport right now is not strong enough to divide and make more classes um, in any way. So the purses and, and the premier class idea, there's just really no way to make everybody happy. And I feel as though if you're a racer, no matter if you're a beginner or if you're a professional, if you're not striving to be better and you're not working on communicating with your peers around you or your sponsors or even just your own family or your friends, whatever the case may be, if you're not looking to be better, I'm not really sure racing is your answer. Um, I think you should figure out where to ride. And and I'm not, in the local area, I've been working on this for a while, is, you know, when you think about motocross, they have more practice days. They have stuff going on that still makes, I want to say that venue or that, you know, racetrack for sure, some kind of income. We, we need that in flat track too, where we can go and work with some of these guys that are complaining and show them that no matter if you have this bike or that bike, it doesn't mean you're going to be a winner. Um, and winner is, is, you know, another term that's hard. What is a winner to you? I mean, obviously there's some successful flat track racers that didn't win any races that are guys I look up to. So um, I never won a national, you know, I, I led a national for a straightaway. That's, 
you know, not a very good accomplishment in my book for all the years I put in, but I look at everybody I raced against and I beat some of the guys that have won nationals. So I do look at it as I'm a winner on certain days, even though I might never have won the main event. So to me, the idea of the, the series has a lot of great, uh, I want to say, I, it's got a lot of forward motion. Um, you know, the problem with it for me is the fact that, you know, to be involved in it and it to be what it is, they need to be a little more organized on some of the money payouts or the, you know, the series really needs a title sponsor. I mean, Roof Systems is doing a great job. Um, being a part of it, but we need to know what the end of the year points fund is going to be before the year starts. So we have to try to get some more stuff in play for then maybe a professional racer that's saying, you know what, I'm really not having a lot of success up here. We don't want to lose AFT guys, but we need to figure out, are they just going through the motions or are they really feeling like they're racing? And if, if it's not there or if it's underneath the hooligan racing, which would be, it's an amateur based class. They're just trying to make it a more of a premier class. Um, they have rules implemented that make it like you guys are saying, no pros or pros. Well, outside the top 10 of any class year prior, that's pretty simple to understand. I mean, that's what I love about the rules of the hooligans, but the complaining, we're never going to get rid of it because if you think about going yeah. to an AFT race, you know, next week, you're going to have the same problem. No one's going to completely be happy other than possibly the top teams or the riders that are being paid, you know, um, a salary, which is kind of uh you know to me not hard to understand but it's hard to understand also is we i just don't feel like there's as many people with the love of the sport that used to be um you know thinking about it Corey, when we were growing up with all the kids we grew up around i mean thinking of the chris kleinfelders i mean honestly you never would have thought that kid had a serious job um because of how he acted and, and how he you know interacted with us but he's one of the I want to say one of the hardest working dudes I knew of at a young age, um, be able to come racing on the weekend. So, um, and, and he had ambitions to be a professional racer too, but that didn't really take away from the fact that you could tell week in and week out while he was traveling to the races with his dad, that that's what continued to connect him to flat track was how much hard work was there. Um, he never owned a twin, you know, he got an opportunity to ride one, but, he still worked extremely hard, and I feel there's still kids out there that are making a salary that work hard. I'm not trying to decipher between. It's just where does the sport draw the line on the fact of, you know, how do you involve guys that aren't looking for a paycheck that want to do it at this level, and then guys that are earning a paycheck, and then how do you intertwine them without having a headache where you say, you know, you got in my way, and I'm running for a national championship. Okay. Uh it's a sport like that's what people have to remember is you know you might have a football team or a soccer team or a baseball team and not every player is to the same level and you still have to play so you have to put those people in different areas well the problem is on racing is that person's on the racetrack against other people instead of it being a team against a team and i yeah. think that's something that is different about our sport is you know you watch a sprint car race and you see how many times or how many people get lapped a lot. So when people start talking about flat track racing and saying it's wrong or it's unsafe for a rider to be lapped, 
No, I think the unsafe part is the fact that we should take that blue flag right out of the equation and we should allow that lap rider to change the result of the race for the fans because it makes it more interesting. And that's what we are. We're in show business, even though we're racing. Um, exactly. It's all, about putting, it's all about putting people in the stands or viewers, however we want to look at that. To grow something, you have to get everybody involved. And if we're not involving them on a weekly basis, we have to figure out how we're doing that more times than not. So there's a couple of things I did jot down that obviously I don't want to change in the sport, but that that blue flag, I think, is sad. I think when somebody just darts out of the way or, you know, isn't in the way of the of the field, I don't really think they're in the way. They're on the racetrack. It's your job to pass them. And I don't care if it's a one line or you can ride anywhere on the racetrack. That's what makes racing interesting. And, and I'm sorry to say it. If a rider gets knocked down, I'm going to tell you there's going to be more people in the stands next week because of that. And I don't want that to be, you know, mean or I could be that guy, but either way, I just feel like that's something that we we're keep implementing what's best for the top instead of thinking about everybody, you know, thinking about the sport. What well, what'll make the last guy happy? Not totally, but more or less if you think about the last place guy, you got to be making everybody else through the field happy. You know, you got to be bringing things from the bottom up instead of from the top down all the time. Well, speaking of last place guy, I got 16th at Lima, but it was, you know, it was, it was just one of my favorite memories of Lima was lining up against, you know, like you and and, and George and um, just, I was sitting there on the starting line right before that main thinking like, this is why I love the sport of hooligan uh, racer, the class hooligan racing. Um, you know, like to go back to what you were saying, there are going to be people that bitch and complain, but I think the more GNHC grows and gets more attention, it's going to weed out and continue to grow on the path that it is like, cause I think of guys like Johnny Bova or Daniel Poole, um, you know, Chaz in Ohio, there's just, there's a lot of skill at that lower level and we're all in, you know, I throw myself in that, that pool of like, we want to get better through the sport of hooligan. And so to have like guys like you and George, like out there doing great things, it shows that like, Hey, guess what? It's not against the rule to try hard with this class because there's a lot of incentive out there and you can go pretty far with it. So I just got to say, like, I've just been a fan of uh, you on that goddamn BMW. I've raced you a few times. Um, one time I stayed on the lead lap, but then I threw it into a fucking fence at Lima. So uh, it's just it's awesome um, to, you know, have you out there and just uh, keep uh, keep making people mad. <laughs> well, I mean. Either way, it was also awesome to be able to line up to, you know, next to George for me. And and for the fans at Lima, the only thing that I feel or I wish would have went different would I wish that the, uh, you know, the official wouldn't have waved George off the uh, front straightaway after the checkered because the fans needed to hear his voice. And I yeah, feel like that's yeah. the only thing that was missing at Lima. Um, you know, granted, the guy can still ride. Everybody's seen that at the same time. You know, we only probably have a couple more years of him going that fast. Uh, age is going to get all of us. So it, as far as the sport, the history, you know, everything that it's got, we can't live off just the history of it, but we can't um, not involve it. And I think that's where this class has some sort of connection. We can't take away from AFT or the top level, um, but we have to have something where it's either bring someone up or it gives someone an opportunity after they're done. So that's my opinion of this class. And that's why I feel like it, it does have a future. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just hard to um, put your finger on just that one 
thing. It's the fact of everything working together and then have a purpose without confusing the fan base or making it difficult to be involved. And, you know, you talked about those purses. I mean, obviously money brings greed. Politics isn't good. Uh, tech inspections, no fun. I mean, all of those things try to keep it where it's minimal. And then at the same time, I don't want it to be just a runaway race. I don't want the AFT races to be like that. So you're going to have bad weekends on the fact that the show's not going to be what you plan. But what makes sense on keeping um, the majority together? And then you can't just hinder one guy. You know, you can, but then all that does is drive someone out of it. So you got to think about ways to keep it going forward in, in, a, in a forward direction. And if that's the fact of modifying something that's, you know, in your rules, that's, that's fine. But I think the rules package, looking at it, what is interesting to me is the fact that it really, you know, you, okay, you got the wheelbase at 56 inches. Well, I could have built the BMW to, to be able to go to 54 inches. Um, do I feel like that should be 57 or 58 inches? You can play with numbers, but don't just throw the rule out or don't just continue to modify to confuse or to make so difficult or cost more money. I mean, a wheelbase rule, if you got to change your swing arm, I mean, honestly, a Molly swing arm, you can build one for 400 bucks. I did it on a uh, 375 to $400. You can build a swing arm um, without having a lot of machining ability. I mean, honestly, using a cutoff wheel and a freaking grinder and a welding, you know, welding ability, you really don't need a lot. Um, you obviously don't want to just have anybody, you know, everybody just welding stuff together. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that's a very small expenditure compared to saying a fifteen to $20,000 motorcycle is now sitting in a garage somewhere. We don't want that. You know, if you're going to have three or $400 spent here or there, that makes sense to me. And that's going to keep people involved. But when you start using motorcycles as paperweights, which I have quite a few of those, it's not, it's, <laughs> that part's not fun and not everybody wants to have those cool, you know, I still have all the KTMs I built. Um, what am I going to do with them? I don't know. I start them up once in a while and I'm like, man, I think sounds good, but I'm not going to go do anything with it because it's not really worth it to me. At the same time, where do I run it at a local race? It's like, I don't really feel like riding that when I can ride the BMW. So things made sense to me after I gave it time from, you know, pro pro time to, sitting at home to the fact of okay i'm gonna you know come out of the garage again and try some stuff you you have to just keep everybody i guess communication too like that's i guess what i'm trying to say about all of it is how many times you leave for daytona in the the aft series where you're like i wonder what the rules package is gonna be i wonder what they're gonna do you know and then it all oh, yeah. comes out at the end and you're like <laughs> man that was not what i was thinking you know so it's it's the fact of just having stuff that's organized and then you know communicate it between everybody but make sense of it too like it can't just be better for the factory teams and it can't just be better for the privateer teams it's got to be something that makes sense and i feel they could do things to bring the, the the factory situation down a little bit where it's more of a level playing playing field for the the mom and pop teams too you know you could actually feel like wow i'm not just getting stepped on you know week after week and then they do it for a couple of years and then you see them just disappear. You know, granted, everybody has a limited amount of, you know, years of racing motorcycles in their, in their, you know, life. But I feel we've, we've exited some younger guys out sooner because of some of the ideas that they've implemented and constant change isn't good. I feel. 
Yeah. I think of Brandon yeah. Price when you say that. Yeah, there's a lot of guys, honestly. But I mean, honestly, uh, I got a, I got a, another segment here. We're we're gonna bring back. It's the high low segment. It's kind of this or that. But before we get into that, um, yeah, it's it's crazy, honestly. The rules thing. You could get me on a, a whole another hour long podcast about about kind of the rules. But I think I don't think it's crazy for AFT to kind of look at what the hooligan class is doing and maybe implement that into what their premier level classes. I mean, I think Jared Meese, when he was on our podcast last year, he talked about, talked about that kind of as well, like running 1200s and kind of stock frames and maybe stock ECUs and things like things like that. Cause Sean, you look at your lap times from Lima, you would have qualified sixth overall um, on your, on your hooligan bike. And that's not a track you can really fake it. I mean, they, they prep at every race. It's, it's pretty consistent throughout the day. And, and you would have been you would have been sixth overall, but yeah, I, I think that's something they could uh, they can look at. Some people listening are probably think I'm crazy, but it's uh, it seems like it's I don't know it's starting to make sense. But uh, I wanted to kind of go over Sean. I, I have some high low questions, uh, kind of a this or that, and uh, I wanted to kind of get your your input, um, just like a brief explanation on on maybe why. Uh, and I have some district six based questions in here, but. Uh, if you had to pick one racetrack in District 6 to race, uh, both of these tracks, one's no longer here, and one we don't race at anymore. If you had to go do a race there tomorrow, what which track would you pick, Trailway or Path Valley? Uh, I'd go to Path Valley, even though if you're going, it's probably going to be a difficult race. But, yeah, I'd say that me and you had probably most of our best races at Path Valley. I would go to Path Valley just because I love the place. Yeah, you were you were good at Path Valley. Sean Sean didn't mess around at Path Valley. He was tough. I I like I don't think people realize how much they like a track until it's gone. Like the fact that Trailway is gone. Uh, I mean, I always like Trailway, but man, it's it just stings. And even like Oglethorpe and racetracks like that. I mean, it's it's uh it's tough. It's tough. A lot of tracks have changed in our district over the years for sure. And that's not a racetrack I ever really pictured leaving. Uh, trailways not being around, you're right. It does sting. And, and it's, to me, it's, it stinks because that was like a perfect setting. I mean, what were they bothering other than maybe the neighbors that were on the, the farm over from them? But there was 250 acres, I believe, that that racetrack was on. And it's like, who could you really make mad? But the people over the hill were glad to get it. And they were glad to bulldoze it over. So it stinks yeah. to think about that just being a field now when that was an amazing racetrack and actually became even better as we, you know, I want to say as we grew because they actually put up walls instead of them dangerous guardrails they used to have. So there was improvements to that place too that were like, this is going to stick. And and to turn around and see that it's gone from car world and motorcycle world, it's like, wow, it, it's kind of actually just like breathtaking. Like I just, I can't believe it still, but yeah. it's also it's also worrisome too because to try to keep racetracks open, it's easier to keep one open than it is to try to generate a new one. Yeah, and that's where my first ever race was, so it's definitely a bummer. Uh, if you have to go, let's say the best you've ever had your motorcycles, and you're going to a mile. Well, I don't know what track. Let's say Lima. That's a fair one. You're going to Lima. You got to either pick your best ever KTM twin or your current BMW twin based on performance, which bike would be better? Uh, the, the BMW, because of the physical shape it takes to ride it is a lot less. You have to be a gorilla to ride a KTM, I feel, and I'm just not no gorilla. So um, 
But one thing I want to say is, is based off of power, I did build a KTM 990 since it's been, well, I rebuilt them after I got done in 2019. And I got one that puts out 230, uh, 130 horsepower at the rear wheel. So would I like to ride it? I made a couple laps at grass and it was really, really hard to ride. <laughs> 130 horsepower. Yeah, maybe like OKC mile or something. I mean, honestly, people have tried to ride those KTMs that you, you were building and that like Bill Warner would kind of come unglued about and nobody could really ride them like you. So I always said like, yeah, I mean, his bike's fast, but everybody else could ride it. It's just, it's a really hard bike to ride. And I think riders like you, Johnny Lewis, um, you know, there's certain riders that are good at riding kind of unorthodox shit. Um, I mean, you put Jared Meese on that bike or even me, dude, I'm doing one lap and I'm pulling off. Like, so it's, uh, it's just cause the bike you guys were good on. It doesn't mean other people could go good on it, you know? So. There was many times I made one lap and wanted to pull off, but I figured if I pulled <laughs> off, I was going to have to figure out how to ride it again anyway. So uh, I have to agree with you at the same time, you know, there, there is so many talented racers within, you know, I want to say this sport and being willing to float around a little bit on different pieces of machinery. It's, it's made you really respect. I mean, I've still yet to be able to run an Indian and people told me don't do it because it'll ruin you as a, as a rider. I don't know how true that is, but, it must just mean they work really good and that's awesome. But back to your thought process on the fact of putting other riders on it, there's many times at the end of the day, you know, racing over the course of time I did at that level would be, man, I just like to swap bikes with someone today and just let them see what this thing's really like. Cause it sucks. So <laughs> it, it's hard to, it's hard to get people to understand that, but there's also times that it was fun to ride, but all in all, no, the KTM was not the answer. <laughs> I like it. Um, in your opinion, what was a bigger upset win? Ricky Winsett or Garth Bastion? Ricky Winsett was at Daytona. Garth won Tunica. Dude, that hey. one was that, – that's so hard for me. Um, and and for, for different reasons. I mean, Garth, that – I would have to say uh, – I don't know. I actually – I can't do that one. That one has to be in the middle because they both – they both are just guys you wouldn't, you didn't expect it. They were great racers and the, and the opportunity, like you almost feel like the stars had to align for it to happen. And, and they, those two days, I'd have to say they did, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think Ricky Winsett with a, you know, the hoodie guy had, to, it has to outdo it. I guess if I have to pick. I think too, cause that was at Daytona. It has so much, I mean, it was heard about more, honestly. Like, I don't even think people listening now, they're probably like Garth who at Tunica. What's that? Like, I think Daytona, Peoria, Springfield, Lima, those tracks carry more weight when, you know, they still pay, pay out the same amount of points. But also, too, I don't know, like, I, 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 Ricky's my guy, dude. Anytime I see Ricky, he comes over and chats with me. I saw him at Frederick, and he, he's such a cool, cool guy, man. He's, he's always been the same kind of guy. And I really like Garth, too. I haven't seen Garth in a while, but I always got along really well, well with Garth. I think I think that's something too. If we still had Garth in the picture and he was racing, you know, at least a couple times a year, and maybe he is, I just don't see him doing it. I don't think he is, but uh, that probably would be, you know, where people would, you know, reminisce a little bit more and talk about stuff. I guess that's kind of what keeps that Ricky thing alive is seeing him go out on a road tax still and, and see him do what he does. Even after through all the trials and tribulations that man has been through and what he's put himself through, 
he can still go around the racetrack like crazy. And that's, that's the part that blows my mind is like, I always keep saying it year after year. I'm like, man, when I get to be that age, I just want to be able to make it look good. I don't know if I need to win, but I need to be able to ride. Yeah. Yeah. He does. He's, he's a legend for sure. We, we've had quite a few district six legends, but Ricky is, he's something else. And I, I don't even know what was Garth's best finish other than that win. I guess we could get some stats from Bert Sumner and see like, was Garth ever top 10 other otherwise I mean it those were really big wins, I'm, man. I'm thinking he was top 10 I mean it, it's just when you squeeze inside the top five and especially get something on a podium um within the sport I mean it's you know it's uh, just it's really so I, it's just next level kind of stuff I mean that's yeah. the only thing I can say yeah I mean like you mentioned earlier in the podcast to even making the mains back in the day as a privateer you had to have your shit together and even on shoot on my, some of my best days I felt I, I ever had, it was like, still wasn't enough to get a win. So yeah, I, I just, I, I knew you'd have some good insight on that. Um, I got two more for you and this one's not really a this or that it's kind of just an open-ended question, but who do you feel is the most underrated district six rider maybe ever, but it probably last 30 years. That's, um, for me personally, I would I would give off three names off the top of my head. I would say Ricky Winsett, who we just we just talked about. Um, actually, I'm going to give yeah. four. I'm going to give four. I'm going to give Ricky Winsett. I'm going to give a nod to Chris Kleinfelder. Um, maybe biased, but he's uh, the stuff he did on the mini bike days, beating Jared Meese, probably more than Meese beat him. Meese has publicly said that. Um, Chris Kleinfelder. I'm going to go with. Uh, I want to give a nod to Richie Mellinger, dude. Um, he never went pro, but man, he's had a really good long local career where he's beaten a lot of really good fast riders and nobody's really ever heard of him, um, outside of our area, but he'll go out and he'll hang yeah. over the years with some really good riders. And I'm going to do Don Mullen. Um, as much as Don Mullen would dominate in, dis in district six and seven, I mean, all the top guys, Jake Johnson and Jared, they'd show up and the guy they had to beat at the local level even in their prime was Don Mullen and he never went on to have like a ton of great pro results. Um, he had some good ones. Don't get me wrong, but I always thought he was, he was really underrated. Like, like really good riders would show up and be like, this fucking guy's good. I'm like, yeah, dude, I got to race him every weekend. So there's a, a few <laughs> on my list at least. Yeah. Um, I one one to add to that. And then I can circle back around on it is, uh, Mike McKee. Uh, I would have to say, I would say he's oh, yeah. probably somebody i think of in the local area that you know kind of got out of it he did do some pro events and then i think he came back a couple years ago and ran some singles but not really um you know just didn't i want to say stick with it you know it didn't i think uh i think again you know series rules changes and whatnot uh to touch upon richie mellinger yeah being an older guy even um he i i remember watching him at trailways on a 250 when i first i don't know i was on probably a 60 or an 80 but uh the guy would go so fast and then fall down and uh i, I don't i never really understood it but he'd go as fast as he could and then he he'd always throw it away it seemed like but he's gotten to the point where now he doesn't do that as much but i think it hurts more so i think he just backed it down a notch but i think he has more speed than what people mostly know and he's he's an older guy too so um, Ricky Winsett for sure, like you're saying, but 
the Chris Kleinfelder thing, I guess from our day, uh, looking at the question a little differently than the way I was when we when you first asked it, but it, I would say Donnie Mullen, if he would have, if we could take the stubbornness out of him, I think he would have been willing and capable of doing a lot more. Um, I think at a younger age, he was quite stubborn. I think he's very knowledgeable, um, but he just never really clicked with anybody else. If he got the opportunity to race their motorcycle, it, it just seemed like he he fought things instead of just letting them be what they were. Um, that's what I view. It's just my opinion. I think he's an amazing talent. But uh, Chris Kleinfelder overall probably is the best pick for District 6 or 7 because, man, he he was just so nice and helpful to everybody. But when it, he put a helmet on, he was always capable of getting himself to the front some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a, a lot of great battles where I, I would uh, – he'd run into me or I'd run into him, and you would think you'd get pissed at each other, but he'd come in the pits and he'd be like – you fucker, I almost had you. Like, it would just be kind of joking around. And that always made racing kind of fun with with guys like that. So, no, nah, it's, it's a yeah, really good insight, man. I appreciate that. Uh, I got one more question for you. And like I said, we could keep this pod going for hours. There's so much more I wanted to talk about. We'll have to get you on for part two. Like, I, I wanted to talk about, I mean, Evan, your brother Evan, we didn't talk about it at all. He's, you know, he raced for a long time. And maybe we'll get Evan on the pod. But um, just so much stuff that you've you've done. Um, in your career racing and ah, we could have talked for hours, but um, we'll get you back on for one, but I got a, I got one for you, man. We're coming toward the end of the season here. We got one point separating Dallas and Jared and who you picking who's winning the title after Springfield or at Springfield. That it, it that's, that's tough for me. I mean, personally, I want to, I mean, obviously I'm just I, my growing up. I would say I probably clashed with, scared a lot these days watching it from home and seeing what's going on and how it's going I mean I have nothing against the assistant team but having 20 guys on a team and you know seeing all them blue shirts I'm gonna go with the Jared deal I'm just I'm all, I, I actually almost I don't want to call him the underdog but looking at the I want to say the the more or less the force behind it it just looks like the assistant team is so much bigger even though Jared has many sponsors and many backers and, and so many resources, but it's pretty much on race day. It looks like it's three dudes, um, you know, pretty much doing that whole entire deal. And, and I think that to me is just, you know, they still only have so much to work with when they're there at the racetrack, but the Essendon team's just gotten to be so big and they got a person for every position. It looks like, I just want to go for the guy that's just doing it the way he's always done it. And uh, you know, can't take away from the talent of that team. And, and as far as, you know, I want to say Dallas and, and JD and what they're all doing and uh, the amount of money that Essendon's putting into it. But I just feel like that's where we have to try to get that back on board is get them rules back into play where it doesn't matter if you have a hundred thousand dollars or not, you're racing. So um, I'm going to go Jared. Um, I don't know if the outcome is going to be that because I mean, Yamaha seem like they get, you know, get up and go and they, you know, don't really look like they, um, they did, but you can talk about that millimeter or not. I, I just feel as though um, I can't believe that one millimeter is doing all this, but Hey, if it is, then I guess they're probably going to take it away from him again, but he's the only Indian that's consistently showing that it's, it's a benefit. Let's put it that way. All right, John. So I have, so one of the things that I do is I run a nonprofit that helps uh, vets with PTSD. And one of the vets uh, that we have uh, under 
working with us. He wanted me to uh, shout something out to you. I have no idea what it means. He's from the East Coast, and he said you'll understand, but he said uh, your next victory party needs to be hosted at the West Shore Hardware Bar. And he said that you'd get it and you'd get a chuckle out of it. So I said, all right, Ben, I'm going to throw that out there. So I have no idea what it means, but he uh, he's a big fan of yours. And uh, he's been at a couple races with us and that you've been there and stuff. So I just wanted to give Ben a shout out. That's uh, that's I'm, I, I'm trying to think the West Shore Hardware Bar. I've been to it. Uh, yeah. At a younger age. I, yeah. I, I got drunk there a couple nights, but uh I don't think it's even in existence <laughs> okay. anymore. Um, oh yeah, but I okay. can't really. I, I, yeah, it's 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 not what it was. So I'm trying to think. Um, I really don't know what it means. That actually now it's going to actually bug me. But uh, um, <laughs> I guess it was way, a rowdy I guess, I guess, a rowdy bar. So yeah, I mean yeah. yeah, pretty much. I mean I slept in my van numerous nights after being there. I was never <laughs> I never was one to try to be really dumb, but. I definitely wasn't going to pass up a good opportunity to have fun. Let's put it that way. That's oh, yeah. awesome. That's we awesome. had some, we had some fun times for sure. I, I used to follow, I mean, I was the Sean and them where they were like my older brothers growing up. So I kind of just, whatever they did, I would tag along with him and Kleinfelder and yeah, man, it was, yeah, I learned a lot, <laughs> put it that way. So Klein, uh, Klein, Kleinfelder <laughs> was the leader. I think we all followed Kleinfelder. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if we want to claim him as the leader, but golly, he definitely, yeah, he, he led you into some fun, some fun, usually bad, but fun decisions. So, um, yeah, yes. Yeah. So a, a lot of good memories. I can only think of one decision that was really bad, but it ended up, I mean, I think I got like karma from it, but other than that, I, I got away with it. It wasn't cool. <laughs> Yeah, didn't we bring that up at his at his thing? I think we brought it up. It's it's definitely it frowned upon. His, yeah, yeah, at the memorial for him. We yeah, I think you. I couldn't talk. I just couldn't do it, and I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to. So I think you told the story. But either way, I think Chris ended up gone in like three or four different vehicles from one spot to the other. We were all drunk. It wasn't a good idea, and you know, we'll bad results that. ended up to be okay results. But yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's either yeah, way. There's yeah, we did some stupid, we did some stupid stuff. But uh, looking back at it, we won't forget. But I think it reminds you of what you, you know, you know what's good, what's bad, and at the same time, be thankful for the time we did have together. Um, yeah. You know, but yeah, the dumbness, the dumbness is something that you just can't, um, I guess, take out of the young. I want to say the the young crowd, and you have to allow it to play out, and you just hope nothing bad happens. But yeah. there are days where obviously, you know you know, with Chris being removed from our lives, it was a changing time for our generation, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy now it's full circle. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties, I'm a dad and I'm, I look at, I help some of the kids and I'm like, don't do anything fucking stupid. And I'm just like, Holy hell, I'm, I'm the one telling them not to do anything stupid. And they were like, they, they, you know, Corey, you're old and you're boring. And like, they don't want to hang out with me. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm fucking awesome. Like, I'm fine. What do you mean? It's like, <laughs> I'm offended. It's like life yeah. comes at you so fast. <laughs> well, and it's the fact that you know that the outcome of that is fun and there's memories, but really honestly, what you're trying to train and help them do what they tell you they want, you're trying to bypass that. And without, you know, really without being honest with them, there's no fun way to, to tell them other than it's not worth it. You know, don't yeah. go and do that. And 
there's there's so many times that I wish I would have been able to to change my decision making, but you have to live with the outcome, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize until it's either a too late or their life has changed. You know, it's the fact that you want to be a school teacher or you want to be you know race motorcycles. There's things if you do it, you're not going to be a school teacher. If there's things you do it, you'll never find a sponsor that wants to you know help you in the flat track world. So yeah, if you yeah. don't have everything it takes to do the job or you don't own it all, it's kind of hard to, uh, to not screw up. So you have to just implement that and figure out a way to still be the cool Corey instead of, you know, the lame Corey, you know, so you have to, you know, implement that some way, but it just doesn't sound right to them, I guess. Yeah, that's fine. I, you know, it's, it's wisdom. As we get older, we, we learn a lot. So it's, it's a cool transition, man. And I'm really, really thankful for you to come on the podcast. I've been wanting to get you on for a while. I'm glad we made it happen. A lot of really cool insight about, the early years of your pro career and the transition to hooligan racing, man. I mean, your story is, uh, it's really cool and it's refreshing before you came on. I, I, I think I said it was really cool to kind of see you smiling and having fun again at the track. I think we talked about it at, uh, maybe it was Middletown, one of the tracks where I was like, dude, it's cool to see you enjoying it. And for a while there, it just didn't seem like you had that enjoyment. And, you know, to be honest, it seemed like you had a little chip on your shoulder and now it's just like, it's really refreshing and cool to kind of see Sean bear having fun at the track and, smiling and you know i know it's tough with kind of scrutiny and people saying shit and i'm i've dealt with it too where you know it's like ah fuck them dude go out and have fun do what you want to do and you know if people are bummed about it then i don't know they need to figure out their own shit but it's it's really cool what you're doing hopefully the hooligan level can kind of step up to what you're doing and instead of you stepping down or doing something different i think what you're doing is amazing and yeah man a lot of respect and Appreciate you, dude. We'll have to get together one of these days, have a beer. It's been a while and definitely appreciate you. Uh, like I said, once again, coming on the pod. Well, and like you said, going back to the fact of the idea of having someone like Bill Warner hating on you. If you're, if you have a guy like that mad, you're probably doing something right, even though he might think it's wrong, but if he's going to waste time on me instead of waste time on the equipment he had, that must've meant something because uh, otherwise I'm a nobody and he's a somebody in the sport for sure. I mean, he obviously has a lot more stats than I'll ever have. So I look up to him, even though I think our relationship is probably turmoiled and never going to go anywhere, but I'm, uh, I'm thankful for the fact that he was who he was and where I'm at today. But at one point, yeah, you're right, Corey. I, I didn't really have a chip on my shoulder, but I felt like every time I turned around, it's like, I felt like there was someone that just didn't want me at the races and I, that's all I wanted to do. So I, like I said, I had to take time away and just more or less not care as I came back. Like, I don't really care if someone doesn't think I should be there. I just love flat track racing. If they can't like me for that, then that's their problem, not mine. A hundred percent. Nah, we love having you, dude. It's like I said, it's cool to see you run and that fucking Beamer is loud. Like I was telling you at Frederick, man, I, I thought like toward the end of the race, you were still stuck on me like glue. And I was just pan. I'm like, I gotta go, gotta go. Like he's, he's on you. <laughs> that thing's so loud. It's, I'm trying to think of ways to make it louder. <laughs> is it a stock? I mean, it's, I want it to be it's not a stock exhaust, but did you do anything? Is that just the way the motor sounds on those bikes? Or, I mean, is like, why, why does it sound so gnarly? And it, wh- how funny was it that Scotty then thought it was a two stroke? <laughs> well, it's it's the, the the bad thing about AFT is that was a little lack of effort. They should have sent somebody down to ask me some questions, but instead they just they were doing the best they could do in their little room they have for commentating for the race, and uh, I can't blame them for that. But really, it's the firing order of the bike with both pistons traveling together with one dead cylinder, one live cylinder. It's the two into one pipe. I mean, 
there are things about the bike that, um, you know, I've done that makes it that sound, but at the same time, yes, it's the unique firing order, the way that the pistons travel, the energy of the bike, um, the harmonics of it. I mean, the dyno, it's hard to get a good dyno run off that thing with, you know, just hanging a, you know, a coil wire off of it and, you know, attaching that way. If, if it touches any metal, I mean, the thing gives off so much harmonics from the way it, it actually, I want to say, generates energy through that, en that, that engine um, that other motorcycles don't have that problem. So it's, it's good and bad. I mean, obviously, I broke a couple frames because of vibration and everything else. So BMW has their, uh, I want to say, their uh balancers right but when you start screwing with them like i did um you can break frames pretty quickly because it vibrates like crazy like you want to talk about arm pump it it would i mean honestly i broke the frame in three or four different places one day at gratz um and i was getting ready to go to limo to one of the rpm races and um i found all the cracks in the frame i'm like well i guess i can't go to the races next week because i got to figure out what the problem is here and Really, the problem was is I took all the balancers out of the engine and just wanted to run without. It put good numbers down the dyno um, after we figured out how to dyno it without having the harmonic problem. But on the racetrack, it wasn't going to stay together. I mean, the engine was strong, but the frame couldn't withhold unless I would rubber mount it like the Harley do these days. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm about to need to send me that the noise of your engine. I'll make it my alarm clock in the morning or something. Just freaking. <laughs> it's it's uh it's a cool sound I, I i think it's rad it's cool it, yeah and i do hear all the time about the two-stroke noise and and i from the helmet actually it's one of the worst sounding motorcycles to race i actually <laughs> dislike the sound of the, the bmw while racing it but i cannot tell you how many people are driven to me by the noise of motorcycles that i've had and that's something that i'd like to continue to carry because it's unique. And I think that's what we need. I mean, obviously I do understand sound rules and everything else in certain areas of the, the country, but at the same time, I don't understand it when we go to places that run, you know, V8 engines and on a normal basis, I do not understand why we can't bring our level up to MotoGP and, and make it where when you're on the other side of the racetrack, you can still hear what's happening instead of it be like, well, I hear them and they just don't sound like they used to. I hear that all the time. And yeah. with the beamer and them not implying any kind of sound rule yet it's still it's still carrying some you know value so i'm hoping in one aspect that if you know aft is you know hearing or listening or even cares about any of this i, I hope that they understand that you know the senses are used when it comes to show business and i can't believe they don't know that but if you take one of them senses out you lose someone somewhere and then it's hard to get them back because they obviously have a negative feel towards it so if they like what they see, they hear, you know, and they feel it and all those things, you continue to grow it because you're going to want to get your buddy along. You're going to want to bring your aunt and uncle. You're going to want to talk about it instead of saying, well, it was okay. You know, it's the same as last year, but they really took this away and they're not, you know, they're just not what they used to be. You know, monster trucks, how many times have you seen them change, you know, that show? Yeah, they jump more things, they flip them now, but the sound of them things hasn't changed the whole time I've been around, you know, sprint car racing, same thing, certain areas, they have to use different, you know, I want to say boxes per se, but really the majority of the time they're open header and they just run them. And that's what people love about it is you can be staying on the infield, but you feel it when they go by. Oh yeah. They're so well, I loud. think that, yeah, that's kind of full circle to what we were talking about at the start of the, the episode is about that sound, you know, attracting us. And again, 
uh, skill level, not there. But at Lima, I, you know, you're you're right. I had so many people were coming through over and we were pit, you know, kind of near each other. And so I had so many people, I saw them would come over to you and they would check the bike out and then they would come over to mine and they were just in, you know, the same with the KTMs, like that, you know, I mean, sorry for the Harleys, but people just really enjoy that unique loud different sound uh engine that our parallel twins have so you know i'm gonna yeah. upset the chat room but it, it it offers a lot to the sport yeah it does yeah. And, the, and the sport was created off of harley davidson obviously in a, in a roundabout way for our generation like that's what we remember from the 90s being kids you know is harley davidson is what carried it for so many years and we still have so many fans sitting in the grandstands that are harley davidson enthusiasts that we do not want to get rid of them we want to involve them in a different way. And there's people that have come to me that have, you know, it's wives normally. That's what happened at Lima. Is I had two or three wives come to me and said, you can't let that Harley beat you, meaning George Roeder. But um, the idea was that one lady said, the reason why is because my husband works on Harleys and I'm sick and tired of them. Well, I'm not sick and tired of Harleys, but I, I basically just took it as like, I laughed, you know, I was like, well, I'll see what I can do. And she's like, well, you better. And it's like, I, I have no idea, George, you know, George might be holding it all in for the last, you know, especially went to the five lap dash. I was like, George isn't going to just ride. He's going to race now for five laps. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to get out here and try not to screw up. And uh, you've always way, it's just, it's a longer race. The longer race might've been a little different. Cause I think George was going to just try to hang on. I mean, obviously I don't think I'll ever be able to ride a motorcycle. Like he is at the age he is. I mean, that's, that's just awesome in itself, in my opinion. I was going to say, you've always attracted moms, Sean. Now they're just different ages, different age moms than they were back in the day. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't understand. I don't really understand that one either, but I guess, yeah, if I'm successful at something, I guess you can list me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. And according to our analytics, AFT, they listen to our podcast, but I don't know if they're, if they, if they care, probably don't, but uh, yeah, I'm sure they, they'll, they'll tune in for sure. But Appreciate you, man. A lot, a lot of great insight. Um, appreciate you coming on and we'll catch up with you down the road. Uh, what's the next one you're doing? I think your race is probably the, uh, oh, hell yeah. probably definitely my next one. And I, I don't even know exactly. I think at Hunterstown moms filled out some paper. I can't even remember what I'm signed. I'm signed up in the hooligan class, but I, I didn't really understand the the idea of the open expert or, or like twin class or what you're really having there, I guess, is something that I actually had questions on. Um, I'll shoot you a text. Yeah. She signed you up in uh right. pool again, an open expert, but uh, yeah, we're doing, we're giving out like a little bonus, and it's not much, but a few, a few bucks bonus for the top three finishing twins in that class. But yeah, you can always swap classes, but I'll, I'll shoot you a text. Uh, we'll get you done. So you're running, you're, you're basically running singles and twins together is what you're doing. Open expert, yeah, you gonna, can, yeah, you yeah, can run. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, well, whatever All you right. want to do, well, we'll hit you up. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's my next one, and then uh, I don't really, I think, I think that's pretty much my. Well, I think I'm going to run Lincoln at the end of the year to finish out the the East Coast, you know, GNC stuff, you know, as far as the GNHC stuff, and uh, see what you know. I think Georgie's got that deal wrapped up because they made the point so close that if you miss a race or decide not to go to one or two you pretty much are out so yeah that's pretty much wrapped up i think i don't even think andy has a chance at really i mean unless something completely goes wrong with georgie i think he's got it wrapped up as far as the east coast thing 
Yeah. Well, let's catch up soon, man. Um, I'll shoot you a text on the Hagerstown stuff. And yeah, thanks for coming on. And yeah, let's get together soon, man. We'll do uh get a beer or something. Keep keep uh keep bench are racing. You, are you yeah, exactly. Are you racing uh Hagerstown or are you just promoting and working? No, I'm just promoting and working. Yeah, I, it's a big job to try I and know do it's both. a lot. I just didn't, yeah. Yeah, I just no, didn't I know. wish. Are you gonna I wish go, you're gonna go out and test the track like uh like uh john winsett used to do? <laughs> remember he would test the track at path, path valley and a couple times he crashed he would crash testing the track <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then he'd be hurt the rest of the day <laughs> yeah maybe maybe i'll bring a maybe i'll bring a bike and quote unquote check the track make sure it's good but uh no nah, i yeah i probably you know what maybe i will because i it'll hurt i'll let you going. take the be- i'll let you take the beam around so you can get the gearing right for me all right, bet on it, man. I'll I'll bring my leathers. I, I want to ride that thing. I probably won't be very fast on it, but uh, it'll sound really good. So, yeah, yeah. yeah if you're interested sounds... in doing that, I'd totally be up for it. No, I'm game. I'm game. That'd Sign me up. I'll bring my leathers. Yeah, I'll test the track on that Beamer. That'd be sick. <laughs> so, all right, all right. Game, that'd be awesome. all <laughs> well, right. I'll chat thank you soon, you brother. Thanks for coming on. All right, thank you guys very much. Yeah, see you, Sean. I got a Beamer ride. <laughs> Let's go. There you go. There you yeah, go. Give her a go. Yeah. Ah, oh, we could have talked for hours. He just, like I said, he's really good with articulating his words and he's just kind of a student of the sport. He's just, he just, you know, knows a lot when it comes to machining and riding and different errors. And he's, he's got a lot, a lot of good insight. It was, that was a good one. Yeah. So basically what we at Tankside podcast have done is we've got Colby. He's going to be doing, uh, you know, He's going to be inside the booth now. And then now we're going to have Sean, who's going to take over competition and kind of the directing of AFT. So what, you know, Tanks on Podcast, that's what we're doing. We're just helping fill out the, the AFT. Uh, we, are next year. we are LinkedIn. We are LinkedIn for flat track. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. No, that was great, man. There's so much more I wanted to ask him, but man, we could have. We could have kept it rolling for a while. I think we're going on about two F two fucking hours now. So I, every minute of that was worth it. I definitely had a good time. So appreciate you guys for listening to that one. We'll get this one up and rolling. Uh, big thanks to all the people, the sponsors, people that subscribe, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, leave us reviews. We we appreciate those reviews as well on iTunes. If you get, get an extra 30 seconds every day, hop on your iPhone, click that purple podcast app and give us a, give us a review. That definitely helps us um we like we like review i mean yeah we like reviews the the bad ones eh, it's we like that input but give us some some stuff to work on don't just say you guys are tools we know that we just you know want some input to make the show better but or drop me a message too we get a lot of dms on our tank slap and instagram and those are definitely appreciated just some insight and honestly it keeps me motivated Uh, it's some days i'm kind of unmotivated not un, i'm definitely not unmotivated but it's it gets to be a lot and yeah those those comments and especially eric keep me motivated with the pod it's definitely appreciated so drop us a note we love to hear from you and yeah as that uh well you anything else in your end dude or are we calling this a, calling this a pod i got nothing I'm just gonna go back to my job now all right with that being said <laughs> we out <laughs>